Welcome to Wednesday Word, a Bible study led by Pastor John Jenkins of Northport Baptist Church. All right, if you have your Bibles, turn over to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. We're going to look at some of these verses. We kind of started this last week a little bit in Acts chapter 12, but we'll just go through a little bit what we started. I didn't get through a lot last week because Gary Pate was here from Ecuador and shared a little bit, but we'll dive a little bit deeper into Acts chapter 12. And as we talk about Acts chapter 12, one of the things I want you to see specifically in Acts chapter 12 is really what I believe is the problem with the church specifically in America. Specifically in America. The church in America is missing something and missing a very important component and ingredient to what I believe God has called us to do. And not only would I want you to see what is missing, I want you to see why it's missing and you see all of that here in Acts chapter 12. And so just a little bit of recap, uh, in Acts chapter 9, you know, we saw the conversion of Saul, who becomes the Apostle Paul. We spent a lot of time talking in Acts chapter 9 about his conversion. Then in Acts chapter 10, we shifted from Paul over to Peter. And Acts chapter 10, 11, and 12 are pretty much all about Peter, and they're talking about some of his story and what he is doing in the early church, leading the early church. Then when we get to Acts chapter 13, we're going to shift back to the Apostle Paul, and then we're going to shift to mission, God's mission, what He's called the church to do and to take the Gospels everywhere, everywhere He's called us to take it in Acts 1-8 because Acts 1-8 is kind of the theme of the whole book of Acts. So we see that from Acts 13 on. But right now in Acts chapter 12, we're still primarily focused on Peter. And so that's where we are. So just let me read the first few verses here of Acts chapter 12, and we'll talk about them. But this is what it says, verse 1. It says, About that time, King Herod Agrippa began to persecute some believers in the church. Okay, now we have seen some King Herods, if you have studied your Bible through the Gospels and through the book of Acts. And primarily we've seen three of them in the Bible. So the first time we saw King Herod, a King Herod, we saw Herod the Great. And when did we see Herod the Great? Of course, that was primarily at the birth of Jesus, at the beginning of Jesus. And King Herod wanted to do what with Jesus? He wanted to take him out because he didn't want anybody competing for his royalty, for his worship, for his honor, for who he was. So King Herod did everything he could to try to take out Jesus. didn't work. But then later on, his nephew comes on the scene. It's not King Herod, but it's Herod Antipas. That's the way the Bible calls it. And this is King Herod's nephew. And the reason it's his, or not his nephew, this would be his son, his, it would be his son, but kind of an illegitimate son. Maybe that's the best way to say it. Because what Herod the Great would do, because he didn't want his sons taking his power, he would kill them all. And so he killed most of his sons. And so after he dies, then Herod Antipas takes his place. And Herod Antipas is the one in the Bible that beheads John the Baptist. But also he is in the Bible when Jesus is being tried before he's crucified. Pilate, Pontius Pilate, sends Jesus to Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas is the only person in the Bible that Jesus never says a word to, never speaks a word. Because Herod Antipas wants Jesus to perform for him. He wants him to see miracles. He wants to see magic is basically the way he sees it because he was very into the mystic and different things like that. So he was just weird, evil, 
you can see that if you read the gospel, especially the story of John the Baptist. But now what we've come to here in Acts chapter 12 is we see Herod Agrippa. And Herod Agrippa is the nephew of Herod Antipas. And so Herod Agrippa now is kind of taking over that line. And this family is royalty per se, I guess, but the way they came into royalty is they bought it. They were a very wealthy family, and so they bought their position with Rome, and Rome gave them authority over the Jews, even though they really didn't have authority, because who had the ultimate authority? Whoever Rome put in charge, like Pontius Pilate, the governor of all Judea, he was the one in authority. This is more like the British royal family. Does that make sense? They really have no authority whatsoever, but people look at them as royalty. So that's kind of who this guy is. But he has enough authority to do what here in Acts 12.1? Persecute the church. And you know why he has enough authority to persecute the church? Because most people in Jerusalem hated the church. Okay, they still didn't like the church. Now, the church has grown a good bit. The church has grown significantly. We've talked about that through the book of Acts. But there's still the vast, 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 vast minority in Jerusalem. And so in Acts chapter 8, what did we even see they did? They drove them out of Jerusalem, right? I mean, all the church had to scatter. And so they scattered to places like Samaria and other places. So back in Jerusalem where this takes place in Acts 12:1, people hate the church. So Herod Agrippa is able to persecute the church because everybody hates the church, and they want the church persecuted. So he does it. And how do I know that? We'll just keep reading. Look at verse 2. He had the apostle James... John's brother killed with the sword, and when Herod saw how much this pleased the Jewish people, he also arrested Peter. So right there it is. The Jewish people loved that James was killed by the sword, which basically means he was beheaded. Now here's a good question for you. Why do you think Herod Agrippa went after James? Why did he go after James? Okay, if you want to stop a movement, how is one way you would stop a movement? They do this in military all the time. Who do you go after in the military if you want to stop an army from advancing or you want to stop a military move? You kill leaders, right? That's who you take out. Because if you can take out the leader, then people aren't unified, then people are questioning, people don't know what to do. So James was a leader of the early church. Now, who else was James to Jesus Christ? He was one of the closest to Jesus. So those three close friends to Jesus who would really, really kind of the inner circle, and we know that because they went into the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus, was James, John, and Peter. And Andrew to some extent, but they were all brothers. So James and John were brothers, and Andrew and Peter were brothers. And so they were all very close, but they were all very close to Jesus. So according to the Bible also, when the believers were scattered, who stayed in Jerusalem? The apostles. The apostles stayed in Jerusalem. So James really never left Jerusalem. Now, he might have traveled to go see things like Peter did, but they still lived in Jerusalem, even though the rest of the church was scattered all over, really, Israel at that time and other places. So Herod knows, I'm going to take out the leaders. So he takes out James, has him beheaded, and then what does he do next? He arrests Peter, the head honcho of the church, really the leader, one of the primary leaders of the church. And so he arrests him, but now this is very important here. It says this took place during the Passover celebration. Now look at verse 4. Then he imprisoned him 
placing him under the guard of four squads of soldiers each, Herod intended to bring Peter out for public trial when? After. Okay, now this is very, very important because it tells you a lot about what happened to Jesus Christ. Okay, one of the reasons that verse 3 is in your Bible that Herod got the applause of man because all the Jewish people loved when James was killed is because this is the Passover festival. Now, what happened in Jerusalem when Passover was at that time? Well, this, I mean, no matter when, when Passover happened, people come to Jerusalem. This was the religious festival of the year. Everybody who is a devout Jew is going to travel to Jerusalem. And why are they going to travel to Jerusalem? To have their sins forgiven. That's why they're going to travel to Jerusalem. So what do you have to do to have your sins forgiven? You sacrifice a lamb and you go through all the rituals of Passover. So they are going to come to Jerusalem. So Jerusalem would swell by hundreds of thousands of people from people traveling in for Passover. Now here's one thing that you would never do at Passover. You would never have a public trial and you especially would not kill someone at Passover. Why? Because what would happen to all the things that you're doing? It's sacrilegious basically to do that. So what would they normally do at Passover? Would they kill prisoners at Passover? What do we know that they would always do at Passover? And we know this because of Jesus' story, they would release a prisoner at Passover, right? They wouldn't kill prisoners at Passover. They would release prisoners at Passover. Remember Barabbas? Okay. Okay. So that's why Peter wasn't tried or beheaded at Passover. Now let's just think back a moment for Jesus. Why was Jesus tried and why was he crucified at Passover? Even though it gets, goes against all customs and it even goes against God's law and God's word. Because that's the way God intended it. Because Jesus Christ was the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of us all, the sins of the world, right? Jesus was just the fulfillment of everything from Old Testament law all the way through the Old Testament till He lived, until He died at Passover as the sacrificial lamb. That's why Jesus was killed. And I mean, you can see it all through the Old Testament. We talk about that all the time. But just understand how important that is. Because if that wasn't important, don't you think they'd have went ahead and tried to kill Peter? Of course they would. But Passover is about an eight-day feast, an eight-day celebration. So they were putting him in prison, and they were leaving him there until Passover is over. Then the plan, bring him out for public trial, chop his head off just like they did James. So there really wasn't going to be a public trial. It was going to be a sham. But we know here that they put him, where they put him in prison, was the same place that Jesus Christ was held in prison, the Fortress Antonia. This was the public jail in Jerusalem. So this was the place that Jesus was tried. This was the place where Jesus was flogged, scourged, mocked. They spit in his face. They ripped out his beard. All of this happened in the same place where Peter is right now. But not only that, if you go back to Acts chapter uh, 5, Peter has been here before. You remember what happened to the apostles 
They were all arrested and they were all taken before the Sanhedrin and they were all taken to public jail and then they were scourged and the Bible says they went away rejoicing. That's the same place. So Peter's been here before. This is the second time he's here and now he's in jail. But here's a question for you. Okay, there's one thing at the very beginning of Acts chapter 12 we do not see the church doing. Yeah, we don't see them utter a single prayer. But then look at verse 5. But while Peter was in prison, the church prayed very earnestly for him. The church prayed very earnestly for him. Now here's a question. Why didn't the church pray very earnestly for James? We don't know. I mean, we don't know. I mean, I can't answer it specifically for you. There are two Jameses that are disciples, but we know who this James was. This is John's brother, so this son's of Zebedee, so this is James. And Yeah, there's another James. Yeah, there's two disciples that are James. So why were they not praying? I believe that. Okay. Let me read you this is a verse, and y'all don't have to turn there, but it, you have to go back to Acts chapter 9 for this verse. But this is what the Bible says in Acts 9, and it's verse 31. Just listen to what the Bible says. Acts 9, 31. Now remember, this is after Saul was converted, but what was Saul doing at the beginning of Acts chapter 9? He was trying to kill anybody he could in the church. He was going to arrest them, throw them in jail, kill them, whatever he had to do. So verse 31 says this. After Saul's conversion, it says this. The church then had peace throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. It became stronger as believers lived in the fear of the Lord and the encouragement of the Holy Spirit. It also grew in numbers. Okay, so what did the church experience after a time of persecution? They experienced peace. Okay. Now here's where I'm telling you what's missing in America and why it's missing in America. What happens when the church experiences peace? I mean, it just lulls us to sleep, right? We become apathetic. We become complacent. We don't become as dependent on God as we once were, correct? I mean, this is true in your own life. I mean, correct? When do you seek God? When do you go after God and try to grab hold of Him? Is it in the good times? Most of the time not, right? It's in the difficult times, the hard times. It's when you're hurting, you're struggling, you're sick, whatever it is. Is that not when you go after God out of desperation? That's just who we are as flesh, right? Is the church any different? No. And for the church in America, what have we experienced for really our whole existence here in America, for the most part? Peace. We have had peace. We have never been persecuted. Now, we persecute from within a lot, but I'm talking from the outside, like authorities, anybody else. We're not persecuted from the outside. Now, we're going to be, but we really haven't been in our history. And because of that, has the church in America been dependent on God? Not really. Has the church in America been desperate for God? 
Not really. So what has happened? We've become apathetic. We've become complacent. And we've become dependent on ourselves and our own power and what we can do rather than the power of God. Is that not a pretty good description of the church in America? It's a pretty good description of the church in America. I never, I can't even remember who said this, but, and I think it was Nick Ripkin wrote it in his book, but Nick Ripkin, one of the times he was over in China, and he, he didn't hear this, but somebody told a missionary there from America and China this. The missionary was there, and he was just talking to this Chinese believer, and the Chinese believer said, I'm amazed at what the church in America can do without the power of God. Think about it, though. I mean, we've done a pretty good bit without the power of God. I mean, we've built buildings, right? We've sent gazillions of dollars to missions all over the world. I mean, we've done all of that pretty much in our own power, right? And we've done it in the power of God, the manifest, incredible, omniscient power of God that we read about in the book of Acts? No, not as a whole. And I mean, I'm not saying you don't see the power of God in things, but I'm talking about generality. I'm just generalities here, of course. But it is amazing what we've done without the power of God. Because what have we done to the power of God, especially the church in America and our intellect? We've explained the power of God away. That's what we've done. And we've definitely quenched that by doing it and just not doing what we're supposed to do. And guess what the early church did? The same thing. Why? Because they experience peace. But then what happens when persecution comes? The same thing that happens to you. It drives you to your knees. Is that not what persecution does? Well, of course, persecution puts you on your knees. Verse 5, Acts 12. But while Peter was in prison, the church prayed very earnestly for him. That word earnestly is important. It doesn't mean they just prayed. How did they pray? Boy, they were desperate for God because they knew without God what was going to happen to Peter. The exact same thing that just happened to James. He was going to be headed. He was going to die. So they earnestly pray for Peter. But here's the question. Who prayed for Peter? That's very important. The church prayed. Now here, I told you at the very beginning, this, there's something I believe is missing from the church in America, and there's a lot missing from the church in America. But I believe the primary root cause of everything happening to the church in America is because we as the church do not pray together with one heart, with one voice, lifting our voices together to God like the early church did. The early church was devoted to this type of prayer in Acts chapter 6. And this type of prayer is corporate prayer. We're just like we come corporately to hear the preaching of God's Word. They would do that because they were devoted to two things. What were they devoted to? The apostles. The teaching of the Word and to the prayer. They would come together to hear the Word of God and they would come together to pray. And they would pray together. They wouldn't come to a service and listen to someone else pray. They wouldn't come and listen to prayer requests. What would they do? They would lift their voices together in prayer. How do we know that? Well, the Bible tells us that. Acts chapter 4, right after Peter and John are arrested, they are let go. And guess where they come back to? The church. Who is doing what? 
praying. They're praying. And they tell this report, and you know what the Bible says right after they give this report? And the church lifts their voices together in prayer. And boy, do they pray. And at the end of that prayer, Acts 4.31, do you know what happens? It says the meeting place where they were meeting shook. It shook. And they were all filled with power or with the Holy Spirit, and they preached the Word of God with power. That's what they did because they lifted their voices together in prayer. That's how the church started, right? What did those 120 believers do before the day of Pentecost? For 10 days they prayed, and they prayed together because they were in one place in that upper room. They prayed together. And this is just not something we do as the church in America. We pray separate if we pray at all. But we don't pray together. And I believe Satan knows this, and he has done everything in his power to stop this. And a lot of this comes from disunity in our bodies. A lot of this comes from disunity in the body of Christ as a whole. I mean, are we not disunified as a body of Christ as a whole? Well, heck yeah, we are. Think about it. I mean, how many denominations do we have? How many different thoughts of the Bible do we have? I mean, think about how divided and splintered we are as the body of Christ. But even take it down to a macro level. Are churches not divided as well inside their churches? So do you think if people are bitter and divided and don't like one another, do you think they're going to pray together? Of course not. But what happens when we do pray together? Well, look at it. I mean, look. Okay, this is what happens. Keep going there in Acts chapter 12, verse 6. The night before Peter was to be placed on trial, he was asleep, fastened with two chains between two soldiers. Others stood guard at the prison gate. Well, I'll tell you one thing that happens when the church prays. Do you know what God sends? Well, he does, but he even sent something before that. We ain't got the angels yet. He has, do you not think Peter has peace in that jail? Would y'all be sleeping? Now, one of your best friends has just been beheaded, and you've been arrested by the same guy to experience the same fate. That's what's happening to Peter. And he has four squads of soldiers guarding him, and he's taken inside to the inner prison, and he's chained to them. And what's he doing? Is he worrying? What's he doing? He's asleep. Fast asleep. He is asleep. And in just a moment, you're going to see he's so much asleep that the angel, to wake him up, has to punch him in the gut. It's what he has to do. You're going to see it. That's how asleep Peter is. Is that not the peace of God? I'm telling you, that's, I think that's the peace of God. And maybe you don't. Maybe he took Ambien, but I don't think they had Ambien then. So I think that's the peace of God. Okay, yes, ma'am. Talking about praying with one voice, does that mean aloud or does it mean everybody praying in their own way? Yes. How about that? <laughs> I, I think it's, I, I mean, I do. I think it's both. I think it's both and. I mean, and I think sometimes it's situational, but I think it's both and. I think the most important thing is one heart, united with one heart with one voice, with one thought, desperate for God, seeking, searching for the same thing, with no other agenda, with no other innuendo, we're seeking after God. But yes, I believe it's pretty important, according to the Bible. What did they lift? Their hearts together in prayer in Acts 4? They lifted what? 
voices together in prayer. I think there's power when we pray out loud and when we pray out loud together. I think there's power in that. And I love to hear that. And I know we don't do it a lot because I know people aren't comfortable with that. I understand that. But I think it's great. And I think it says a whole lot about God. When we can have, like in a worship center, when you have hundreds of people sitting in there praying with voices lifted together in prayer, and God hears every single word and every single voice. Does that not tell you something about God, who He is and how mighty He is and big He is and great He is? I love that. So, and He hears every one of us. And He knows our heart, by the way. I mean, He knows it all. But it just I think it's just representative of the power. So I think it's both and. So I think it's both and. Well, okay, how can it lead to confusion? Uh, you're, you're praying aloud, because that's what everybody else yep. does, but you've got all these voices around it, and you're distracted. And you're... But y'all can't hear anyway, so how does that matter? <laughs> <laughs> so maybe that's what God's going to do to us. We're all going to be where we can't hear. <laughs> no, I know. Right. It is. And, and look, again, I think it's, I'm not saying there's one, I think it's all and. I think it's great to do that. I think it's great to pray with voices lifted. I think it's great to sit in the silence and the stillness of God. I don't think there's one particular way. And that's one of the problems with the church in America. We get set in our ways and we get in these traditions and we think this is the only way to do it. Well, no, it's not. And I think certain situations call for certain things. Well, that's true, and you're not. <laughs> you got to be careful. You're the one sitting by Aubrey. I'll be careful. But it. But biblically, let's just talk biblically for a second, okay? When we're talking confusion in the church, Paul addresses this specifically, and he addresses it specifically with voices lifted out loud in the church, but they're not voices praying. They're tongues or spirit, somebody speaking in a tongue in a, that no one else understands. Okay, and then there's somebody not there to translate it. Okay, that causes confusion for sure. So, I mean, just think about it like this. If I'm standing up preaching Sunday morning and somebody just stands up and starts speaking in a language you don't understand, do you think they're going to listen to anything I say? Probably not. I mean, everybody's going to be looking. I mean, y'all look when somebody gets up and go to the bathroom. So I know when somebody stands up and starts, yeah, blah, 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 whatever, in a tongue, you're not going to know what they're saying. Okay? And then if I can't translate it or someone else can't translate it, is that going to cause confusion? And are you going to listen to another word I say? Well, I can't believe they just did that. What, what, what just happened? I don't know what that just happened. So it's going to cause confusion. But here, if we're praying together in a time specifically for something or someone, and we're all praying together, and yes, it might be a distraction for you to hear me praying while you're praying because some of us are ADD. I understand that. I mean, it's just personality. It's just how we're made. It's just reality. But I don't know that that's confusion in the church from that. I think there's a distinction there, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that prayer service. That was really it was, very much so. And I believe God ministered and worked in incredible ways through that. And that's what He does. Is that not what He does? And that's what the church is called to do, 
I believe that. I believe that's how God ministers on this earth through the church. And I know He ministers in other ways through the church. But primarily what should undergird everything we do as a church? That. That should be our heart. When somebody thinks of Northport Baptist Church, wouldn't that be great if that's what they thought about and nothing else? If that was the picture, the image, that, oh boy, that church, they're on their knees and they're lifting their voices together and whatever. But that would be an incredible image. And I'm telling you, that's what the world needs. But that's what the world expects. That's just what the world expects of the church. Oh, the billboard? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, we have a billboard out if you haven't seen it. But it's just trying to get people to send prayer requests and we'll pray for them. So, through our website. But, I mean, I don't know if I said this Sunday, but, I mean, we have an example of kind of a united prayer, just not even in the church, but just from a nation perspective, for a football player a couple of weeks ago. I mean... I bet you almost, now, I mean, I'm sure it's not 100%, but most Americans know the name DeMar Hamlin. They know what happened to him on a football field, and they saw an image of that, and they saw people united around him on their knees in prayer, and then other people around the world, literally, were praying for him. And so prayer does change things, right? I mean, I saw what happened. I was watching the game when it happened, and I was like, He's been without oxygen a long time. Okay, when you go without oxygen a long time, that's not good because you're going to have brain damage and you're going to have other injuries. And he went without oxygen a long time and then he stayed on a ventilator for a pretty good, good while, for about four or five days. But now he's home. I mean, he's up and he's walking. He's, everything's fine for the most part from a physical perspective. But how many people do you think prayed for him? A lot. Yeah. Yeah. And look, here's the problem with this. Not all of them, most of them are not even Christians. Okay? A lot of them are, and you could see, you know who are and who aren't. But what do people do in times that's beyond themselves. Everybody knows in their heart that there's something bigger than me and there's something that created all this and they know in their heart. They might not admit it in their head. They might not admit it with their mouth. They know in their heart and you can see it in times of desperation. And so if the church would just understand that and embrace that and be who we're supposed to be and let God move through prayer, it's amazing what would happen. Yeah. Not not everybody's going to be saved. I mean, Jesus is pretty clear about that. Most won't be saved. Because his way is what? It's the narrow way. It's the narrow path. But I'm telling you, a lot more people will be saved when we pray than when we don't pray. Just like a lot more people will be saved when we share the gospel than we don't share the gospel. Because it's God's way. Yeah, David.
Yes, sir. Yes, sir. It does make a difference. I believe so. Yeah, I and I, y'all might not do this, and I don't do it all the time, but I pray out loud. I do, because and part of it is because I'm ADD. It keeps me engaged rather than my mind going five thousand directions. But I do that. I read the Bible out loud. I pray out loud, and so. For me, I mean, I'm different than Barbara. Like when I'm around people and I'm praying out loud, I have to concentrate harder on my prayer than listening because it, it almost focuses me on my prayer. And so, yeah, I love praying out loud. So I love it. I mean, I think there's something to it. Well, we, we, we always go back to what we're comfortable with. I mean, we, that's just who we are as people, and we always tend to go back to traditions if we're not careful. A lot of times our traditions are not biblical, even though they're traditional. So let's make sure our biblical traditions are biblical. How about that? But I'll talk more about it because I'm not going to get through this, but let me just share one more thing because I love this. Let me just read the rest of the story, and we'll talk about it some more next week. But this is what happens in verse 7, and this is where the angels come in. We'll talk more about angels next week. But it says, Suddenly there was a bright light in the cell, and an angel of the Lord stood before Peter. The angel struck him on the side to waken him and said, Get up quick. And the chains fell off his wrists. Then the angel told him, Get dressed and put on your sandals. And he did. Now put on your coat and follow me, the angel said. So Peter left the cell following the angel, but all the time he thought it was a vision. He didn't realize it was actually happening. They passed the first, the second guard post and came to the iron gate leading to the city. And this opened for them all by itself. So they passed through and started walking down the street and the angel suddenly left him. Verse 11, Peter finally came to his senses. It really is true, he said. The Lord has sent his angel and saved me from Herod and from what the Jewish leaders had planned to do to me. When he realized this, he went to the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many were gathered for what? Okay, they're gathered for prayers, the church praying together. But this, to me, this is the most amazing part of the story. Verse 13, he knocked at the door at the gate and the servant girl named Rhoda came to open it. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was overjoyed that instead Instead of opening the door, she went back inside and told everyone, Peter's at the door. You're out of your mind, they said. When she insisted, they decided it must be his angel. But meanwhile, Peter continued knocking. When they finally opened the door and saw him, they were amazed. Now, here's the most amazing part of the story to me. This church, this group of believers is inside that house praying for Peter. And what do you think they're praying for? They're praying for his salvation. They're praying that God would free him. They're praying for a miracle. And then when it happens, what do they not believe? They don't believe their prayers are answered. Right? That's what happens here. 
They don't believe that God answered their prayers. And is that not us so much of the time? Now look, I like to be amazed by prayer. I think it's a great thing for God to amaze me in prayer. But I still think when you pray, you should expect the answer, right? There's faith in that somewhere, right? Because how are we to pray and how are we to live our lives as Christians? Through faith, believing for the impossible, believing God can do anything. So I think there's a fine line there of being amazed and expecting God to do whatever you ask. But don't be surprised when God moves. Just be amazed. Just be amazed. Because He's an amazing God. Amen? Amen. Well, let me pray for us. Yes, ma'am, Mr. Thanks for tuning in today. Join us next week as Pastor John continues the study. And if you're looking for more, find us at northportbaptist.org.